This morning's scripture lesson is from Acts 2, 22 through 36. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold, its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your, in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on, the, on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you, you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, just praise you and thank you for your word. And ever we uh, gather, for we want to hear from you. We want to uh, hear what you would say to each one of us. Speak now, Lord. We open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've told this story before, but I always feel funny to tell a story you've told before. But as I thought about this passage, it just kept coming in my head. Um, it's back when I was uh, probably about a little over a year, year and a half, I'd become a believer in Jesus. You know, I'd spent three years overseas, you know, came to the Lord in Israel with a crazy thing, and then I came back home, and I was staying at my, my, uh, my father and stepmother's house. And I say that because I didn't know what I was doing, and it's not a normal place I would live and stay. But when I was staying there, I get a phone call, and someone asked for me. I, it's kind of odd that they even know I'm there. And it's just, she says, uh, this, she's somebody who worked with me four years before, like in the, when I was working the portfolio manager. And she said, do you remember me? I'm like, sure, I remember you. And she goes, okay, something, I, I, this is going to sound really weird, but I need to tell you something on the phone. And I think, well, at this point, I've been a believer about a year and a half, and, and weird was like what I was into. <laughs> it's like my whole life had been turned upside down, God's real, and weird things. And I said, yeah, bring it. You know, I wasn't like the slightest bit concerned. And she goes, okay, you know, I was, I, I was, I, I'm, I've been really struggling being really, really depressed. 
almost suicidally depressed. And um, I went to a, um, which she, this is San Francisco, okay? So she went to this healing center. I, I don't really understand what it was, but she goes, you know, there was like music and things and people coming over and putting their hands. There was just kind of weird new age healy kind of thing. And she was in some kind of room and she found herself kind of like almost like chirping to God. She said, or not to God, but she's chirping, you know, help me, help me. And she said, I heard a voice distinctly that said your name. I don't know if it says like call Garrett or something like that. And I had, you know, we have no contact with her. And obviously it meant so much to her that she actually managed to track down where I was living at my dad's house, track down the number and call me. And at that point, I wasn't even shocked. I was like, I know exactly why that happened. You know, okay, we're going to meet, and I'm going to you know, tell you exactly, you know, here's what has happened to me you know, since you last worked together and the journey and how God got a hold of me. And I thought this is just obviously from the Lord. He is working, and it's going to, you know, here's what's happening. So I sit down, and I tell her my whole story, and she goes, wait, wait, wait. Jesus? Bible? Oh, gosh, no. And she left. And that was it. <laughs> You're like, like how, do, how can that, like, what, you know, how did that happen? You know, why did that happen? And, you know, sometimes I, I think of that story a lot when I sometimes wonder about, you know, what is it, how do people become believers in Jesus? How do they follow him? You know, I often think if that, if God could just do something really dramatic in their lives, you know, or, and, and, and then that would make all the difference. If they could just understand and someone could explain to them the gospel, that, that would make it. But in my experience, that's not, not necessarily the case in many times like that. But nor is it my experience that people come to faith and follow him apart from those things. There always seems to be some activity of God involved and some sort of encounter with truth for people to really decide to follow Jesus. So um, today we're continuing in our series in Acts chapter 2 called All Things New, the Prophecies of Pentecost. And there we're kind of showing how uh, on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it's almost like summing up all of these scriptural pictures and promises. It's the recreation of all things, fulfilling all that was promised. God is making all things new on that day. And in, in particular, right now, we're in the middle of Peter's speech. And here Peter's going to say the key to which God's making all things new, the key is Jesus. And to our point today is how does he go about explaining that to people? How does he help them understand that Jesus is the key? What's his kind of argumentation for people to respond? And, and how does what Peter did there relate to how we become believers of Jesus and we follow him today? And so that's what we'll talk about. First, when Acts 2, what is Peter's methodology here? What do we see there in the scriptures? How is God revealing himself? How does that relate to how God reveals himself today? And lastly, what does that imply about how we respond? And what kind of response we can expect to see? So, back to Acts chapter 2. And just to, to stick it in context again, on the day of Pentecost, remember that you know, Jesus has ascended, to, you know, he crucified, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. Now, you know, now we're at the Pentecost 50, you know, what is it, 50 days later, the meaning of Pentecost, then the Holy Spirit is given and the church is born in Acts chapter 2. 
and it is a pyrotechnic session, you know, in Acts chapter 2. You got, you got wind, you got sound, you got uh, tongues of fire. It says the Spirit's coming down, landing on people, and then suddenly people start speaking in other tongues, languages they've never heard before. Remember, there's people from around the world gathered for this Jewish feast of Pentecost, and suddenly they hear in their own tongues praising of God. And they're thinking, what is going on? What is happening right now? This cacophony of sound. And Peter stands up and then gives this sermon in response saying, let me tell you what's going on. And he begins by saying, what, what you're seeing here is what was foretold in Joel, right? We talked about most of this passage a couple weeks ago. But in the last days, God will say, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. This is what you are seeing right now. And Joel really talks about the kind of consummation of all things. And really what kind of what's happening here is, it's uh, Peter saying this is the inauguration of the consummation, if you want to call it, the beginning of God bringing together all things, which is really kind of our whole series idea of Pentecost, that here you see pictured the inauguration of God's bringing together all things. But the key thing to understand this why, not of why, but how he's working in this passage is to see the final line of this promise. He says the spirit is being poured out and then at the bottom of the passage, he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is what he's really going to jump off. Basically, how do you call on the name of the Lord? Who is the Lord? Ultimately, he's going to finish his sermon by saying, and thus, God has made Jesus Messiah and Lord. And basically to call on him. So this is kind of what he's going to do. So we're talking about now, how does he go about proving that? That he's the Lord. So he begins by saying, you know, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, is a man accredited to you. But just stopping on that phrase for a moment, it's interesting that of all the ways to describe Jesus, this is how he's described here, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we know at that time there were, you know, many people with the name Jesus. There may people common first names. People didn't have last names. So you had some sort of specific descriptor, oftentimes the son of someone or a descendant of someone or part of a clan or of a particular city or a town like Nazareth. And that's significant to us on a couple different little mini levels. One, it just, it, Jesus is not some weird spiritual being out there. This really hits on that he's a real historical figure He's a person from a real place at a real time. This is not just like mysterious kind of stuff. This is real stuff that happened, which is really important as we think about it. Um, but also the fact that even choosing a city like Nazareth would not be the kind of city you would choose anyway. And if you're looking at apologetics, this is an, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a minor city. It's not even a city that's prevalent in, you know, in the prophets or in prophecy or in you know, history. It's an obscure, nothing little town, which actually from our standpoint today adds weight to the choice of it and the use of it adds weight historically it's a small little apologetically but i think it's significant of that this is a real man living in a real time that you all saw and he says he was a man accredited to you by miracles wonders and signs you know, and so there's three different languages. You know, all these things that Jesus did, he was accredited. The things he did, you can see who he was. You know, miracles, signs, wonders. And here's a key line, as you yourselves know. So he's not, by the way, up here trying to prove to you that Jesus did a miracle or did a sign or did a wonder. 
He's going, all you guys are fully aware of all this stuff that's happened. I don't have to prove to you that those things happened. It was actively happening among you. And if you didn't see it, you knew other people who did see it. You know, that this is, you know that there's this guy running around there and doing so many things. They have everyone's attention. Everyone's aware of this person. And the key, obviously, is this is, you know, accredited by God, which God did among you through him. So it's not just that this guy walking around doing all these amazing things. Everyone could tell that this is how God was showing you he is the Messiah, that he is the chosen one, that he is being sent from me. And we know that so many of his miracles and signs, you know, were linked to, you know, revelation, revealing who he is, revealing who God is and his plan. They weren't just rocks of power. You know, there's, you know, when he, uh, anyway, I don't want to go into that. Got rab no rabbit trails, at least not many, just a few today. Uh, but the key is that it was God's activity and God showing this is the one he's placed his hand on. That was the purpose of all the signs and wonders. Much like um, Nicodemus said in John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs, right? The attest attesting signs. This is a sign of who this person is. No one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So basically, you're doing things and you're bringing your attention to everyone who's seen it, that he is the chosen one, that he is the Messiah, that God is with him and he's, he's doing these things. And it says, as you yourselves know. But then it flips then. After all this time of attesting to who Jesus is and that they would know that he is the Messiah, then it said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And you've got to understand, we, you know, we have a cross up, people wear crosses. In some ways, it almost diminishes the significance of what we have. And not only just the significance, but um, how horrible it is. I mean, this was the way, this was the means of execution. This was the means of humiliation. You know, the Romans would uh, not just kill people, put them to death and judge them. They, he would, they would hang them in the middle of communities. People would come past them. You would see in the horror, and it was meant to terrify and intimidate all the people into keeping it quiet. This is the horror we're going to do. You know, you watch what you're going to do and how you're going to live, and you would see this. The horrors of that, the natural thought when you see this is, oh, the Messiah who's come to deliver us from Rome, who's come to deliver us off the oppression we're in, he's the great one. What happened to him? Ended up just where everybody else ends up, up on the cross. But he says, no, no, this is God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's hand is on this. This has not happened by mistake. This was always what was to happen. You know, God then raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the way in which God was revealing himself and revealing his very plan. If you remember, this is something Luke talks about. You know, he says, um, when, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said to the people he appeared, he goes, how foolish, and, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So basically saying this whole thing that's happened, 
his death on the cross, his rising from the dead is all what would happen in the scriptures. His, him having to die in it, right? And it's not just like one prophecy being fulfilled. It's the entire way. This is how God is going to redeem the world. This is how the sacrificial system is fulfilled. This is how God cleanses of our sins, atones us for those, makes us clean, creates the new world all through the death, the laying down the life of the Messiah and the resurrection from the dead, right? This is the whole plan. And, and then he goes in and he says, David said about him, and he quotes two Psalms of David here, Psalm 16 and then later Psalm 110. And a little thing which might be an interesting tidbit, which I think is really important here, is um, in Jewish tradition, King David was actually born on the day of Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and also died on the Feast of Pentecost. It's not in the scriptures, it's a tradition. And, uh, but he was buried in Jerusalem as well in the scriptures. But it's interesting that Peter seems to me definitely referring to this. You know, he's taking a, a cultural thing they were all doing. People probably walked by the tomb of David and talked about him a lot. And he quotes it right in the middle of this psalm and this celebration. And you can even see here, fellow Israelites, I could tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. To me, it's clear that he's kind of referencing this idea. And the reason I say that is, um, you can make too much of these quotes and, uh, and, and, and the way in which he's using the Old Testament here. Basically, what Peter, what Peter does with this one is he says, you know, he quotes David saying, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You'll not let your holy one see decay. And he goes on and says, well, clearly David's seeing decay. He's in Jerusalem. Right? He hasn't risen from the dead. Clearly, he's a prophet speaking forward. And he's arguing as to why this is really a messianic prophecy. I'm not arguing it is or is not, but just what he's doing with it. And, um, and then he's going to quote again, um, uh, yeah, you know, Jesus, God has raised this Jesus to life now, and we're all witnesses of it. Unlike what happened there, it's fulfilling Psalm 16. I, one thing that's tricky about this is um, I think what they would often do is quote a bunch of little, a uh, bunch of different Old Testament passages, and then just give a name to one and expose it. And that's what's happening here. I mean, there's like language about the pangs and the birth pangs of the Messiah, cords of death, things of David. He talks also about um, how David's uh, descendant will ultimately be king. But he just hits them all and then quotes a big psalm. Anyway, I just want to see what he's kind of doing. He's using the scripture to prove the events that are happening here is the big idea. And you see again, God raised him from the dead and we are all witnesses of that. Which tells you what? He's not proving the resurrection. He's not taking time to prove to you this guy rose from the dead. He's explaining what they've experienced. Like he's not even answering this. He goes, you all know this happened. You know, that this guy died on the cross, rose from the dead, did all these miracles. You are witnesses and you see it. And now I'm explaining it to you what's going on. And he goes on again and quotes Psalm 10. God did not ascend to heaven David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord. And we're actually going to talk about this Psalm 110. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks specifically. I think it's worth it. Uh, Sit at my right hand to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But you can tell what he's doing here. Then he's going to say, and therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, this man among you, who did all these signs and wonders, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. 
sort of the concluding line. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I mean, you know, the spirit, boom. And they said, what do we do? And then we know they, you know, 3,000 of them were baptized, basically called on the name of the Lord, on Jesus, and were saved. So that's sort of Paul's, uh, Peter's speech. And so what's the argumentation here? I think you see basically almost a three-part argumentation. One, he's talking initially about the uh, activity of God, the encounter with the sort of truth in the scriptures and proving it, then ultimately the action of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, right? It says, first, you see, you saw, you've seen God active here. You saw this man rise from the dead. You've seen all his miracles. You've seen stuff going out there that's gotten your attention that God is doing something, that God is active in some way. And then you see the idea there. He takes it and says, here's what's happening here. And he goes to this objective truths of the scriptures of what's promised, lays out those kind of truths and says, here is what's going on. And then ultimately, it's this movement of the Holy Spirit that kind of moves in their heart, brings conviction, shines a light on those things that it's true. And then people respond. I think that's as well how it works today, isn't it? You're talking about how, you know, I don't know how, you, how everyone came to the Lord or if you're thinking about it, but I think you'll see these three elements in all of our journeys and the journeys of other people who you're thinking about. You'll see this idea that I think everybody needs to see in some sense the activity of God, that God is at work today, that God is at work in your lives. You know, I mean, sometimes you could see signs and wonders. You think, I need to see crazy things like that. But actually, I don't find that as much. I, I don't like when people say they need to see miracles. They actually don't want to see miracles. You see miracles all the time. What you want to see is something unusual, right? The miraculous, we're surrounded by the miraculous, aren't we? I mean, this, this world's incredible. Someone's born into the, a, a new person is born out of another person. They become like a little one of you. That's an, an unbelievable. Even the fact that you're interact. I don't know if anyone, maybe you can't understand me because I'm speaking too quickly, but for those who can understand me, I'm actually blowing wind out my mouth and it's somehow traveling through the air, cruising into, this is, your ears are picking it up, and then it's somehow electrical, <laughs> some kind of electrical thing, and you're now interacting with my thoughts. How the heck does that happen? I'm over here, I don't even know what a thought is anyway. You know, what is a thought or a memory or something like that? I mean, we are surrounded by the just brain-chilling, miraculous stuff that is, that is the world we live in. What you're hoping for is something that's unusual. <laughs> that's not normal that I can't quite explain and you'll call that miraculous but most of those things are actually quite dull next to the normal miraculous world we live in and and so I think there is an idea in which but but yet to see God's activity sometimes we do need to see crazy things I need to see a crazy thing and there's a lot of people, you know, I mean, uh, we heard Oded on, uh, you know, for those who listened to Oded preach a few weeks ago on Zoom, you know, he, he saw a rabbit healed in front of him. You know, I've had a friend who had his toes straightened out and he goes, I need to give my life to Jesus, all that kind of stuff. I remember after when I became a new believer in Israel and seen the stuff and I'd want to hear from people, how did you become a believer? And they'd tell me their story and I'd be like, and? And when was like the crazy thing, you know? And I'd be like, it, you either? Not you either, not you either. I went, oh, I'm the anomaly. You know, I'm the, I'm the exception, not them. But what you did find in all those stories is that God made themselves real to them in some way. They sensed and saw the activity of God. 
And for, many, for some people, that is just, you know, they look outside and they stand up and they see the beauty of the universe and the world of it all, and they, they sense the reality of God. Somebody is so kind to them and cares about them, and they see the, the love of God through another person. There may be circumstances that move in the way something happened at work or their lives or something strangely provided for them, and they see someone else could write it off as nothing, but you go, that was God working. And you begin to see the activity of God in the world. And I always find that when people want to follow him, they feel and sense that God is at work and real. You know, I just, uh, I should have asked my son before I share this, but he's off now for five months, and so he can't get back at me. So that's all right. No, I'm kidding. He, he took off this week to go do a discipleship school at a mission thing for five months in Texas. But it was his first time away. He's going to be gone for five months. And he, he was... Um, just reflecting a lot on leaving and feeling a lot of sadness, you know, to all the things he would have to leave, and it's a big step. And it was actually really the best graduation gift ever. Somebody in our church actually gave him a two-day retreat at a retreat center, a spiritual retreat, which is pretty cool. And so he goes up there, and as he's re he spent time journaling and reflecting on all the things he felt like he was losing, that he was seeing sad, and he was thinking about so many friends and teachers and home and family and just putting all these things down why he feels this loss and then when he was there he looked at them all and went these are all I am so blessed every single thing I think is a loss was actually an incredible gift and he saw his life as this a flow and pile of abundant gifts from God and that turned then changed his view of the world, <laughs> changed his view of what's happening. Not profoundly, but you know what I mean? it just changed his heart and then it gives you courage as you walk out. As God has piled my life full of gifts, so he will do it. But it was amazing. He got to, you know, his faith was wrapped in the sense of beginning to see the activity of God in his life. But it's not just the activity of God, because if it's just the activity, it, something happens, you need to understand what it is that happened. What does this mean? Who is this? Why is this? And that's that encounter with the truth that is the scriptures. You know, it's, it's, um, it helps you understand what is this world I'm living in? Who is this? What's desires of me? You know, it's kind of the difference between you ever have something really, you know, this cool thing happen to you, but you have no idea of the source of it or where it happened. It's still this really wonderful thing, but how different when you find out who did that, why it happened, who is that person? You could then give thanks to them you could build a relationship with them. You could know them, but you need specific information about it. And the scripture is that kind of specific, you know, that's how I understand how I'm to live in this world, who God is, how I can know him and walk with him, understand what he promises me, right? So it's always these encounters with God and uh, the, God's activity in the world and then this encounter with truth, which helps me understand that. But those things alone don't actually then turn you to Jesus, right? There's, there's a mysterious movement of the Holy Spirit. Even this whole chapter is about the Holy Spirit given that somehow takes these things and brings that sense of conviction, that sense that it's true, that sense of what you need to do, and it moves in you to do it. It's a mysterious thing. And whole, you know, theological schools have split on understanding like our, you know, how, can we respond to it? Do we not respond? You know, can we resist it or anything? You know, but I think just experientially, we've, we've seen it. We've seen resisting, and we, we know we need to respond to it. And what happened in the book of Acts, right? You see, oh, man, 3,000 people responded, right? 
if you keep on reading in the book of Acts, does all of Jerusalem turn to Jesus? No. They, have the, they see the activity of God. They see the encounters with truth or the ex explanation of it. And then people, many do receive, many don't. Ends up in persecution and things. And, and people had to leave Jerusalem. People were killed, martyred. So far, they're resistant. And I find that's in our lives as well, isn't it? We see, and some mystery, right? I mean, I think of this person who had that experience. I, I think, well, maybe someday in her life will she turn to Jesus? I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't even know what happened then. It's not for us to know. But I think what is for us to know ultimately is that, you know, God is working in these ways. And he's active out there. And each one of us, we know, we do need to respond, don't we? You know, ultimately, will you respond to that? And it's not just a one-time response, right? Don't you find like you need to respond every day? I mean, I had that crazy thing happen to me 30 years ago. It doesn't do me a whole lot of good today. <laughs> you know, I still I have to decide this morning, am I going to respond to God and follow him? Am I going to, you know, look, look for his hands and want to do it? You know, and, and I believe those things are ever available to us as we respond to him. I think, you know, you can go, do you find that you can actually begin to almost stop seeing God's activity around you? You know, it's kind of the difference of going and spending a beach day and going, oh, that was really fun. I had to like taking that moment, you look up there and think, wow, look at the power of this ocean. Look at the beauty of what's around me. Look at the wonder of the people in my life. And you begin to just feel, wow, God's activity in my life, bringing these people into my life, bringing that thing, being able to come down here. In the scripture, God wants to give you a perpetual encounter with the truth of who he is, how to follow, live with them. And then it's for us then to respond to him. That's really what he's asking for us. And I think those are the things we need to, we need to foster and to keep looking because each and every day, you know, I, we can, it's amazing how quickly you can, your eyes can become dulled and blinded almost to his work. You almost think that God's not even active at all in the world. And you kind of close yourself off from the truth and begin to stop kind of looking in that thing. And you start to find that, gosh, it's no longer beating in my heart. I'm no longer seeing the world, that thing. I'm, my relationship with this one is barely existent. So we need to respond to him. And he says, seek me and you'll find me. And really, as we come to communion now, this is really what this is. This is a table of response. It's a table to come back again. It's a table that he gave us because he knew we would need times of renewal, times to come again, to receive the great truths, to receive the idea that he cleanses us, that he loves us, that he's where with us. That he says, my spirit would move in this powerful way that even as you have bread and wine, as my spirit will come on this and make it a communion with me so my spirit can come on you and renew you as well.